Well, good morning, Phyllis. Uh, this is Phyllis Gelaseth, and welcome to The Journey. And um, let me just explain a little bit about what The Journey is. Uh, the Journey is um, a show that brings on just uh, ordinary individuals who maybe for different reasons have had setbacks in their life. Um, it, it could be something that has happened to them, or maybe it's some kind of transition that they've happened in their life. Um, going from a, going from one career to the next, or maybe it was addiction or suicide, um, a suicide survivor. But it's a little bit about their story, but it's also most important. What did they learn about any setback they had, and what are they doing with their life now as a result of not just a setback, but what uh, how they transformed through that? And I know that um, you have your own your own journey and your own story. And so, um, so Phyllis, welcome welcome to the journey. Thank you. Uh, and uh, but let's let's start with just as you get to share with us a little bit about who you are. Um, why don't we start off? What does Phyllis do for fun? <laughs> and I watched some of your other guests, and I knew you were going to ask me this question. Mm -hmm. And this one's hard for me because um, I'm just getting to know myself again in a new way. So fun for me is probably a little different than some other people. Um, I think right now in my life, what's fun for me is focusing on self-care and learning about things that I enjoy now okay. and getting to know myself. So a lot of it is quiet downtime, um, reading, prayer, um, sometimes just, you know, zoning out and watching TV, baths, things like that, that I can kind of do alone and spend time with myself, getting to know myself. Sure. Um, and, and so it, it sounds like that is, that's, and I know you're, you're a mom. And, and so I know a lot of times when, when that's being a mom, that there's a lot of, um, a lot of things going on. So there isn't, yes. a, isn't, uh, isn't a lot of uh, downtime. So uh, why do we kind of, so you have three children, three children, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and your oldest is Liam. Well, Taya, my stepdaughter, is my oldest. Oh, Taya's um, your oldest. Okay. Yep. okay. She's um, living out at, at college. Well, she's wow. not in the dorms anymore, but she's okay. going to college at North Central. Oh, okay. um, she actually took off this coming semester because of the sports issue. Um, okay. She does track. Okay. And uh, so they're not doing the indoor track. They're doing outdoor track next semester. So she's going to um, go back for her master's. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and the, she's 22. And 22. Okay. Yep. And, and that is your stepdaughter, right? Yes. Yep. She was six when I met my husband. Okay. Okay. And then, um, well, why don't you kind of give us the order? Go ahead and yep. give us the okay. <laughs> So that's Taya. Um, and then Liam would be 20. Um, he, he died um, shortly after his 18th birthday. So he would be 20 right now. And then I have um, Riker, who's six, and who will be seven in December. And he's in first grade, and he's doing e-learning right now from home. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. And, and so he, he's your youngest with, with your husband, you said? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, so have you grown up in the – did you grow up in the Rockford area, or are you are – you from? so nope. where are you from? Where are you from? Um, I grew up in a small little town in Wisconsin. It's about 20 miles north of Wisconsin Dells. It's oh, really? called Boston. <laughs> a lot of people don't know where it is. Um, yeah, there's about 3,000 people or so when I lived there. Um, it's probably grown a little bit since then. 
Um, I lived there till I was about 20. So Liam was four at that time and we moved down here to Rockford. Um, my parents were divorced and my dad lived down here okay. and he had a lot of health problems and I knew that he probably didn't have much time left. So I came down to be closer with him and spend time with him. And I had some family in the area. My brother lived down here and some aunts and uncles and cousins and stuff. And I just wanted to uh, come down here and come to the big city of Rockford and start my life here. And um, my dad lived for about a year and a half after I moved here and he, then he passed away. Okay. Okay. And how, how old were, um, were you when mom, when your mom and dad split? Um, I was five or six maybe. Okay. Okay. And so, uh, and did your dad, after your mom and dad got divorced, did your dad move to Rockford right away or was that, um, yeah, um, he moved actually before they split. Um, they had moved from Rockford up to Wisconsin. Okay. And then um, my dad decided to come back down to Rockford to start a business. And um, they kind of split during that time. The plan was that we were all going to come together, but they, they split up during that time. And um, so he stayed in Rockford and we stayed in Wisconsin. And I would come visit him and things like that, but I didn't, um, wasn't raised by him and I didn't have a whole lot of time with him growing up. My mom ended up getting in a relationship with someone else and um, he had four children and we lived together and that was kind of um, my childhood growing up with them. Gotcha. What kind of business do your dad have? Um, it was like a kind of like a Radio Shack type thing, like um, selling electronics and fi fixing electronics and things like that. And gotcha. at that time, you know, there was like VCRs and things like that and TVs that people would fix. You wouldn't just go buy a new one. You'd fix it. But <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. I, I remember those times. I remember those time periods where you would have a TV repairman come to the house and, and repair your TV or you'd bring your VCR in uh, to get it fixed. And um, it wasn't disposable like it is now. And yeah. uh, it, it was it, it, I rem and I remember in my adulthood being married and making that transition to things being disposable. And I was very resistant to that because I, I felt like it wasn't, uh, wasn't very prudent way of, uh, with money, you know? And yeah, definitely. But it, it be, you know, once, once you couldn't get people to, to come out and fix it because they said it was just easier, uh, just to dispose of it and, and buy a new one, um, or it cost more to, to have it yeah. fixed. Then I was like, okay, so I gave into it. <laughs> but, um, so I, I do actually know the Moston area actually, um, uh, because we have my my mother my mother-in-law and father-in-law bought a second home a lake home um, at Lake Redstone, uh, which oh, is yeah, uh, twenty minutes yeah twenty minutes south um, from Moston. So uh, so yeah we so we're like literally right in between Moston and Reedsburg. Um, yep. And so, uh, so I know that area fairly well. We've been going up there. They've had it since '89, and I've been going up there with with Diane in since '92. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it's beautiful there. Redstone has that little waterfall area that you can hike to. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so tell us a little, like when you were in high school, did you, were you involved with any activities? Were you any, any extracurricular activities? Um, not so much. I didn't go to high school. Um, <clears throat> I dropped out of school in eighth grade. Um, I went to homeschool, um, which I didn't really get homeschooled. Um, 
growing up, my mom got in a relationship with a man that had four children and three of them were, um, severely, uh, mentally ill. They had schizophrenia and they were, um, they were very difficult to have in the home. Um, and during that time, I didn't like being at home. I didn't, I was very rebellious. I didn't really want to go to school. So I started skipping school a lot. Um, so to kind of avoid truancy, my mom took me out and put me in homeschool. Um, she was doing what she thought was best at the time. Um, but I, I went back for about two months, maybe my freshman year, and I didn't, I didn't go to high school. Um, so when I became pregnant, I was already out of school. A lot of people probably would think um, if they hear that I had a kid at 16 and that I didn't finish high school, it was because I got pregnant and that I didn't finish. But um, when I got pregnant, I actually, that's when I started to want to do things with my life and um, started taking some of the classes like at the local community college for the GED and things like that. And then you got your GED. How long after uh, Liam was born did you get your GED? Um, I started taking classes probably when he was about two. And then I had completed everything except for one class when I had moved down to Illinois. So then I finished my, um, I think it was math that I had to take here. And then Illinois at the time made you take a constitution test in Wisconsin. Didn't, so I had to do that. Um, so it was right after I moved to Illinois that I got my GED, so I was 20. Sure, so uh, I'm gonna kind of go bounce back and forth. You, you had talked about that um, being pregnant and, and, and having Liam, that, that was, um, we, we could definitely say it's life-changing, right? But, it, but, for, but for you, it was, a, it was a, the catalyst to change your life. And, and so tell us a little bit about like if you can kind of remember back to what why what was what was it about that being such a significant because there's a lot of people um that that they may get pregnant may have a child but it doesn't change their life um so so what do you think was different in your case um i think that being a mom for me um just really came naturally and i love i like being a mom um and I think it gave me a purpose at a time in my life where my environment and my home and my family, it just, it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't safe. It wasn't, um, it wasn't anywhere I wanted to be. So a lot of the things I was doing was just to avoid being at home and avoid my environment. Um, and I didn't really have goals or anything to focus on. It was just kind of getting through the day and avoiding certain situations. So when I became pregnant, it gave me something positive to focus on. It gave me a future to think about. It gave me a reason to want things um, outside of myself. And I guess maybe I needed that because at the time I didn't have the ability to think about goals and things like that for myself because I didn't feel like maybe I was worth it or I'm not sure what it was, but having Liam made me have a reason and a purpose to want to do things and to want to give him better than what I had and to make sure that he didn't have to go through the same things that I went through. So providing for him and making sure that he had a better life and environment and family than I did was, um, I guess the purpose that I needed. Sure, sure. 
Well, and I think, you know, there, there's an element to that. And I just had this discussion just recently about how critical it is to, um, how critical it is to, to have that sense of purpose or have that sense of something bigger than myself that I'm, I'm moving, moving for, right. And moving forward for, or I'm getting out of bed because there's something bigger than myself, why I need to get out. Because, um, I think that when we don't have that sense of purpose, um, you know, life just is heavier, just as, I mean, life is already hard, but I, I know for me, I need something more than just Kevin to, to be able to, to put my energy toward and, you know, well, essentially get me, get me moving and get me out of bed because I can, I can stay in bed as, as you know, I could talk myself into, you know, just pulling the sheets over and just, you know, I'll, I'll just sleep a little bit later. I'll just do whatever. And um, if I know that something is needing me to be present and available, um, then it's, it's, then I'll do that. You know, I'll, I'll make those moves. So it sounds like that was Definitely. kind of, yeah, a turning point for you as well. So, so tell, so tell us a little bit about, so uh, tell us about Liam. Tell, tell us about, you know, uh, what was he like growing up and um, that, that whole experience as a, as a young mom yourself, but, but then now, uh, you know, watching him grow and everything. Yeah. Um, I truly believe that Liam was you know an angel to me and I always called him my angel and that he he showed up in my life at a time where I absolutely needed him and he changed the direction of my life and what I wanted for myself and what I wanted for him and um being a mom at 16 you'd think that it it was overwhelming of course but I immediately felt a connection with him I immediately felt bonded to him and I immediately wanted the best for him and I I always took care of him from the beginning you know I was still living at home with my mom but there's many um teen kids that have children and their parents take care of them or you know they help quite a bit um my mom was working full-time she wasn't able to do that you know even if that's what I wanted but um I I felt that connection right away and I think that was really important too. Um, you know, a lot of teen moms will, they don't make that adjustment very easily because you have to kind of give up everything in your life. But I didn't really have anything to give up um, that was really good in my life. Everything that I gave up was a distraction and taking away from what I should be doing. So um, uh, his his dad and me split up when he was about two. So we tried to um, parent together and stay together. Um, it just didn't work out. Uh, he was, you know, young too. He was 17 at the time and um, it just it didn't work out. And um, so me and Liam moved out when I was 18. We moved out and got our own place. And uh, he was a really fun kid. He was always very reserved and kind of quiet but when he was around the people that he trusted and loved he would um, you know put on his little shows and sing and dance and things like that but he had to be comfortable around people he wasn't really like the big show off in front of large groups and things like that but if it was the people that he was close to you know he was singing and dancing and showing off and stuff and um, he was a lot of fun he 
I remember one of the first times that he got hurt. Um, uh, he was, I think, two at the time. Um, and he was singing and dancing and spinning around and he fell and hit his head and he cut his eyebrow and he always had a scar there um, from that. And I remember that was like the first time that I was really worried for my child. I was like, oh no, does he need stitches? When he's taking to the hospital, he's bleeding, you know, and it's, you look back and realize like, you know, all the bumps and stuff that are to come still, but that first time you're like, oh my gosh, you know, it's so scary. And <laughs> yeah, I, re- I remember, I remember that, that feeling of just not, not knowing, you know, and in, in, in our case, you know, with Diane and I being together, just kind of like looking at each other and not knowing, you know, should, should we bring him to the hospital? Should we not bring him to the hospital? You know, um, are we overreacting? You know, all those things. So there was a couple hospital trips. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So. And, you know, even as a young child, like he was very into what you would say typically are boy things, you know, even from a very young age, he, he liked um, skateboarding and his favorite color was always blue. And he always wanted to wear like basketball outfits and boy clothes and be the boy character when there was ever a chance to be um, any sort of, you know, make believe play or characters in video games and things like that. So um, looking back, it's very easy to see those things, but at the time it just seemed like, you know, he's just a tomboy and that's okay. And so, so maybe for the listeners that, that, that don't, don't know your story and don't know Liam's story. Um, Liam was not born, uh, uh, when, when he was identified as a baby, uh, was not identified as a male. He was identified as a female. And, and so, uh, so tell us a little bit, uh, you know, cause you just kind of ventured, you just kind of moved into it a little bit. Um, I, I'm, I know this is an assumption on my part, but it is Liam was not the, his, his original given name. Is that correct? Right. What, right. Was, what was his given name at, at birth? Um, Liam, when he was born was named Lydia and okay. he was assigned female at birth. Okay. And um, he didn't come out until he was 15 as transgender. So growing up, we didn't know I didn't really, I mean, I, I had actually met trans people and I had known trans people, but it just wasn't in my mind in any way. It wasn't something I ever considered or thought of. Um, I knew probably when he was in kindergarten that he was going to like girls. His first crush was with a girl. And um, so I had known that, but I just, the, the piece of gender just really wasn't on my radar at all. I had thought that, you know, he probably would like girls and he would probably be a tomboy and, you know, that was fine and it wasn't really a thought. But when I look back on things and I, I think about stuff like that, you know, there, there was definitely signs and uh, it, he definitely leaned towards male things and it, it just, it's, it's easy to look back and see things that way. But when you're going through it, you don't, you don't think about it. And he didn't have the ability or the language to express those things. And I didn't have the knowledge that I have now. And, but when he was 15, um, uh, we actually watched Caitlyn Jenner's interview. And she was, you know, one of the, really the first people in the media to talk about this openly. And, you know, what, 
people have their opinions on her as a person and that's fine. But I think what she did at that time really opened up a lot for the trans community because especially in America, you know, media is such a huge thing. We, we get so many social cues and so much information pushed at us through the media. And when there's not representation of um, different diversity within people, it's hard to really understand your own identity because of the way our society is set up. So I think it was a huge turning point for trans people for her to share that story. And I think him seeing that <clears throat> opened up something in him that he didn't have the language for. And once he saw that, he started kind of doing his own research before coming to me and like realizing, okay, this, there's a word for what I'm feeling and this is what it is and this is what it means. And when he realized that, then he came to me and told me that he, you know, thought that he was a boy. Mm -hmm. And that's when the whole um, transition started and we dived into all of that. So going, and I, and I appreciate you saying that even though now looking in hindsight, you could see there were, you know, certain, um, certain indicators that, okay, that makes sense looking in hindsight, but at the time it, it, it wasn't these, uh, clear road signs that said, this is exactly the, 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 the road at that time Lydia is going down. Right. So, but, um, and I know for me, um, as a school, as a social worker, and then a school social worker, I never put it together that my oldest, my son, wasn't speaking English until he was about three, three years and like three or four months. And um, because we could communicate with him, we knew exactly what his needs were. He was never frustrated. Um, we were that you know wary and tuned to where he's at. And he, and it was only later did we find out that that was an indicator that he had a speech delay. And then that speech delay also tied into having a learning disability and dyslexia. Um, but, and I look back and I'm thinking, okay, Kevin, as a school social worker, you should develop, you know, know the developmental milestones, but completely didn't get it. I mean, some of it might've been the fact that he was our first, yeah. but, it, but it was also the fact that we didn't, similar to yourself, you could, you, it, it wasn't, um, we could rationalize and make it still say it's still, we're still moving in the right, you know, still moving in the direction, developmentally moving in the direction. So, um, so I can, I can definitely appreciate um, that. And, and I think there is that, like you, I, I think you were indicating that you were like, okay, so she, she may be gay. Uh, she may be, you know, uh, that, but okay, that'll be okay. I'll love, you know, I'll love her no matter what. Um, and then, so Prior to watching that video, um, when he was when Liam was fifteen, um, was there? Because I know you had told you had shared at one time with me that he struggled with depression. Um, did do you think he struggled with depression prior to that? Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> he struggled with depression for um, quite a while. Probably started around sixth grade. Okay. Um, he. He was um, a very intellectual child. He was very smart. Um, when he was in, was it third grade maybe? Um, they wanted to put him ahead um, to the next grade. Like he was doing so well um, academically that 
they thought he could go ahead. Um, and he always did very good in school, but I think he also put a lot of pressure on himself. I was never like, give me that report card. What'd you get? And you know, like on him, but he would do that to himself. Like he wanted to get the best grades. He wanted to do really well. And when he didn't do well, he was very hard on himself. And he had kind of this perfectionism in himself that um, I think led to a lot of uh, depression and anxiety. Um, I think I really noticed the anxiety first before the depression, um, being anxious about certain things like grades or um, you know, just getting something right. Um, if he would try a sport or try a different thing, if he wasn't good at it immediately, he was very hard on himself. And I noticed those things, you know, around sixth grade or so. So, um, so sometimes in therapy, we will look at in individuals in their own learning, right? Not, it doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily need to be taught by someone in their life. It, it, it's something that they learn and then gets reinforced that they become uh, externally um, reinforced, right? So if I do well in school, then I get affirmation. So I like the affirmation. So then part of my value gets tied into doing well in school and it, or, or for someone else, it may be sports or it may be something socially or, or whatever it is. And then the idea of not getting that reinforcement um, or the fear of not getting that reinforcement becomes almost terrifying so there's this anxiety that comes with the possibility of not getting that validation. It, and it may be completely an internal thing. It may have nothing to, you know, it's, it's reinforced, of course, um, right. by, by, by people in our lives, but it may not have necessarily started with any uh, malintent. It just, you know, of course, yeah. we would encourage someone for doing well in school. You know, it's, that would be good. Right. Being a good mom to do that, you know, but... But sometimes there, how a person internalizes that, it becomes, that becomes the focus. That's where my value gets tied mm -hmm. in. And it sounds like Liam may have had a little bit of that going on. Definitely. He, he was very um, internalized in his thinking and stuff too. And that's what made therapy very difficult. Um, you know, he had been in therapy on and off and uh, he wasn't very good at expressing his thoughts and feelings, and he wasn't good at um, sharing what was going on and vocalizing those or communicating those well. So a lot of things were internalized and a lot was kept in and it wasn't, um, it wasn't dealt with appropriately and it made it difficult. And I think that, you know, the gender part of it really complicated that because if he didn't understand himself completely and he didn't understand how to um, express that to somebody, that that makes it hard to, you know, when you don't have a language, if, I, if I'm saying like I'm in pain, but I don't have a word for pain, how are you supposed to explain that to somebody? So I think a lot of it um, really compounded when the gender part came into it, because there's this whole part of your entire identity that you don't know how to express to somebody. So I think when he was able to express that, I think that lifted a lot for him, the depression and the anxiety, because he, um, he was able to externally share how he was feeling with people and he had a label and he had a way to explain it and um, for a while a lot of that was lifted and he was doing better it seemed um, and then when so everything was manageable with his anxiety and depression he was in therapy for a while he was on medication 
there was no indicators of suicide to me um, throughout any of this time. Um, it wasn't until uh, November of 2017 I bought my house and uh, we moved in. We closed on the 4th of November and it was right after Thanksgiving um, that Liam made his first attempt at suicide. And I didn't, I was blindsided by it. I didn't know, like I knew that he had been struggling in certain ways, but I had no idea that it was to that point. Um, so <clears throat> I was at work that night and I got a call from him and I thought he was on drugs. I thought that he had taken like psychedelic drugs or he was tripping on something, like he was not making any sense. Um, so I FaceTimed him because I was really concerned. I didn't know what was going on. He was talking about my mom being in the backseat of the car and I knew my mom was at home. So he was hallucinating. Um, and on the FaceTime, it was very chaotic. So I hung up, I called 911. I called his friends and um, because they were um, concerned about him too. Uh, and I met them at the location that he was at. Um, he was in his car parked, thankfully. Um, and they took him by ambulance to the hospital and he had overdosed on his depression medication and prescription cough syrup. Mm. And um, so he was hallucinating. And uh, by the time he got to the hospital, he had had a seizure and he had metabolized all the medication. So there was nothing they could do other than just let him um, come off withdrawal from medication. So um, it took about three days for that to happen. Um, I wasn't sure if he was going to have brain damage or if he was going to wake up or what was going to happen. I was really unsure at that time. Um, yeah, I can't even imagine how scary that must have been. Um, not only getting the phone call, but then when you get to the hospital and they, and how many times do we hear when someone does overdose that they it's it's they take care of it at the hospital and and in this case. It, it wasn't able to be taken care of. They could just manage his symptoms and they couldn't really um, extract it from his body. Yeah. So, so after he is medically stabilized, did he, <clears throat> did he, uh, I know a lot of times when that, with a, with an attempted overdose, then they get trans um, transported into the psych hospital. And did he do a, a psychiatric stay at that time period? Yeah. Um, so he was transferred from the hospital to Chicago Behavioral Health um, once he was medically stabilized. And um, so with him being trans, um, it complicated a lot of his treatment. So from his first attempt to when he completed suicide was six months. And there was a lot of um, in and out of treatments and attempts in between and a lot of um, trying to advocate for him. And it was the gender issue always made everything a lot more complex because people aren't educated and they don't understand the needs. Um, they don't understand simple things about like just calling somebody by their name and pronouns and how not doing that, how much you are contributing to the issues with his mental health. And, um, you know, during his stay there, they labeled all of his belongings with his dead name, which his name had been legally changed at that time, but we hadn't gotten it changed with insurance. So they were going by what the insurance said and they were putting his dead name on everything and they were calling it over the intercom. 
Um, they didn't allow him to have his testosterone that was prescribed to him. There was just a lot of, um, a lot of barriers in the way of his treatment as a trans person. And it was an extremely frustrating time for me trying to advocate for him, especially like when he was in other facilities, um, like, you know, in Chicago, I had to drive all the way there sometimes just to, you know, speak to somebody face to face and get them to do what they're supposed to do. Um, <clears throat> and I was working full time managing a restaurant at the time and trying to keep my house in order and trying to keep him alive and trying to teach doctors how to care for him. And it was uh, extremely, extremely difficult time. I can just, I can just imagine. And, and, and the, I, I obviously don't have any words at the moment. Just, I'm just thinking when you just talked about the fact that he was prescribed due to his tr transitioning, uh, he was prescribed testosterone and they weren't uh, giving him the testosterone. I'm, one of the side effects of not being able to give him is, is going to be symptoms of depression in yeah. itself. Right. I mean, yeah. so I, uh, yeah, it's un very extremely unfortunate or tragic in itself that you're, you're going there for help. And because of the lack of, a, of understanding, awareness and education, um, they're, they're causing barriers to his individualized um, yeah. treatment. Right. Um, I mean, if, if he was diabetic and he needed insulin, they would have given it to him. So I don't understand how they can't um, give him testosterone. I just don't. And, you know, and he was capable of doing it himself, too. So I, I just it made no sense to me. Sure. Sure. So so obviously that that time period, that six months was frustrating on multiple levels. He I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he wasn't wasn't getting better or if he did it was kind of like like a roller coaster you know um where there would be moments maybe of, of of things lightening up and then getting darker um when you when you look back on well, well okay let's fast let's fast forward to um so he, he attempted again the final time he attempted was in may was that correct yeah may of and 2018 that, 2018, May of 2018, and and what is there something was there something different during those circumstances at that time, or was that, or was it just that, yeah, what was different at that time? Um, I don't know that he ever recovered from that first attempt. I don't know that there was ever any real light at the end of the tunnel. I feel like there was days and moments where he seemed a little bit more like himself or had more happiness or joy or whatever, but he never really recovered from that first attempt. He was very depressed a lot of the time. He struggled a lot of that time. Um, he was, you know, in and out of different places with different, he was at Rosecrans a couple of times. He was in and out of every emergency room. He was in Chicago Behavioral Health twice. Um, it just, it just never, he never seemed to get a proper diagnosis and he never seemed to get proper treatment. And it really, it really is a shame that the links that we went to get him help and the resources that we tried to use and we just couldn't get it. And um, that last attempt, he, he was back at home. 
Um, he was back working at the restaurant with me a couple days a week. Um, he was recovering from a knee injury, which was an attempt at suicide where he had got hit by a car. Um, and he had just gotten privileges back to get to use his vehicle to drive back and forth to work. And he was, I was coming home from work and he was supposed to be going into work and he never went to work and we couldn't find him. It was um, a Monday. He was supposed to work at four on Monday and he didn't go. <clears throat> and uh, we found his car Tuesday evening and then Wednesday um, late morning is when they found him. I'm so sorry on so many different levels. Um, uh, no, no parent, no, no, no parent should have to go through um, that at all. And, and you go through uh, outliving their their child, let alone um, the frustration of, of 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 the what led up to um, the May of 2018. And I know that at least my experience when I've worked with people who've struggled with depression and is that the depression itself lies to us, just like the anxiety, right? It, it lie, lies to us and distorts the truth. Uh, similar to what you said when he had taken that cough syrup where there's, it's not exactly the same or it can, it can be typically it's not uh, like a hallucinogenic, but it, it definitely hit the voice. Um, the thoughts are so strong. It's not actually a voice, but it's a thoughts that are so strong that it seems, and it seems so convincing um, yeah. that mm -hmm. it's hard to combat that. And then was during that time period was, and I know that he, he struggled with articulating um, what was going on and putting it to words. Was mm -hmm. he, was he able to share um, what was going on? Um, <clears throat> there was no specific Thing. There was nothing, um, it was a lot of vague, um, he, uh, after his 18th birthday, um, let me back up a little bit. So he was in Rosecrans during his 18th birthday. This was after he was recovering from being hit by a car. Um, and he had surgery, knee surgery. And um, after that, knee surgery he stopped sleeping and he um went into a catatonic state and he had to be taken to um, Swedish American from Rosecrans in inpatient treatment and this was the day after his 18th birthday so because of HIPAA laws they wouldn't even confirm to me that he was there even though I knew that he was because Rosecrans transferred him and Rosecrans told me but they wouldn't let me even they wouldn't even confirm that he was there. I had to go to court and get um, guardianship over him so that I could even like communicate with the doctors in the hospital about his treatment and stuff because he was he wouldn't even he wasn't even speaking at that point. Um, and so after that episode, um, he became even deeper into this depression that was so bad that um, he was even um, I'm trying to think of the proper term for it, but he wasn't, um, experiencing reality correctly. Like he was thinking that people were, um, against him. And he was thinking like people were <clears throat> laughing at him when they weren't and things like that. Like it was so severe that, um, he wasn't really in reality. You know, he, he had a, 
um, a friend that he thought hated him and stuff. And I had that friend come over and we sat down and we talked and the friend was like, no, you know, I don't feel that way. I, I love you. You're my friend. And like, there's no evidence that could convince him otherwise of his thinking. And it was just, it was so frustrating that, you know, he's living in such a dark place and that those thoughts are so bad that he's believing them even with evidence to prove otherwise. Um, and he was never diagnosed with anything other than um, severe depression and anxiety. And his therapist said that, you know, his depression was just so severe that it was convincing him of these things that weren't true. And, and there is a, and I don't, and again, not knowing what, what his therapist was sharing, um, but there is an element to that when depression can have psychotic features and, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think that's kind of what I'm hearing you say is that there was, yeah. I mean, Liam had, uh, or yeah, Liam had a multitude of things going on, uh, life, life-wise things were going on, but there was definitely a strong chemical imbalance that was happening. And, and because of, of the trans aspect of it, and because of how he internalized um, that it, those things were complicating, um, complicating the his treatment. Um, and, and that's not to say that even if those factors weren't there, that it still wouldn't be a complicated, a difficult to, to find the right uh, balance of medication and the right balance of therapy along with that, because it's um, the more severe the chemical imbalances, the more, the more difficult it is, even if we're you know, able to articulate really well what's, what, what's happening. Um, and we even get the, you know, dial in the right treatment but um so it sounds like there was a lot of different things that were playing into this at the same time so 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 tell me a little tell us a little bit about with your journey and again you you know uh i i know that prior prior to may of of 2018 uh liam had gotten involved in regarding advocating um to help uh others who were in the lgbt community um and, and because, because the people that I've talked to, um, you know, cause, uh, that went to Harlem with him, you know, as you said, spoke very highly of him. He spoke, you know, that he, you know, was, was not only this had an energy, but he had, uh, you know, people liked, they, they liked Liam. They, they, yeah. and, and that was staff as well as um, other students. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about that part of him getting involved and um both i think both you and him getting involved Mm -hmm. with um some some advocacy um even prior to his death yeah with him coming out um it was his sophomore year so he was going into the harlem main campus from the freshman campus and he wanted to change his name at school so we went through registration and everything and everyone was really kind and nice and helpful and was like yeah no problem we'll change his name and school started and they realized like well you know, there's Skyward and there's all these things that we need to consider and we can't really just go and do this. And so that year was really hard for him because, um, you know, he had to be constantly correcting and um, letting people know, like, you know, this is my name, these are my pronouns. If there was a substitute teacher, it was filling them in. So he had to constantly be advocating for himself at school. And uh, the school had already been doing a lot of diversity training and was already Um, wanting to implement some things but Liam really pushed for that to happen because they actually had 
you know, a, a kid here that needed help. So we were part of a team that created a, a transgender inclusive policy for Harlem School District students. Um, we worked for about nine months. It was me, Liam, some other students, some staff, um, some board members, uh, and we worked with Illinois Safe Schools Alliance and we created this policy so that it would be inclusive and so that people could change their name in the system and so they could change their gender and so the, and it accounts for um, you know dress code and um, locker rooms and bathrooms and um, whether or not this kid is out at home and um, they want to share that with their family and it has all these um, multiple facets to the policy which is really great and it's been very helpful to the students there and they use it often and they're actually um, I'm on a team now that's creating one for their staff so that their staff can have the same um, policy coverage too. So if there's any um, teachers or anyone that wants to transition that they're um, covered through policy too and they're safe and able to do so. Um, so during that time, I was also starting the PFLAG chapter in Rockford. Uh, being a mom of a trans person and not knowing all these things that I know now after um, educating myself, uh, I wanted to learn and I wanted to help others in the area that might not know what to do or where to go for resources. So we started the PFLAG chapter and um, really just started networking with people and getting our name out there and meeting different people in the queer community and having events and things like that. And uh, Liam was on his GSA. He was the president of the GSA at Harlem and he was a part of um, a youth group through the Illinois Safe Schools Alliance that helped with that policy. Um, lots of kids from all over the state would come together and um, they had a, a camp, action camp every summer and they would have different events throughout the year and different meetings and things like that. So he was very involved in learning about the community and advocating for the community. And um, I think a lot of the younger kids too, like looked up to him as like, you know, um, somebody in the community that they could go to and ask questions or if they needed help or resources, he could help guide them to them and things like that. And um, I, I think a lot of people that knew him <clears throat> didn't know about, you know, his depression and stuff like that. And it didn't, it didn't get real bad there till the end, but um, you know, people would meet him and see him and they would see him smiling and they would see him laughing and they would see him um, comforting other people and being, you know, kind to them and um, just his personality and stuff. They didn't see, the pain that was behind all that and they didn't understand that you know how much he was hurting behind that because he was always there to comfort other people and he was always there to stand up for somebody else and he um he didn't come off that he was struggling so much real, real quick just so that people know um p flag stands for it used to stand for parents family um friends and um of lesbians and gays but it's not an acronym anymore. Um, it's more, it's a, the world's largest uh, organization for LGBTQ people and their loved ones. So gotcha. um, we, our mission is support education and advocacy. So we, um, it's made up of parents, allies, friends, queer people, and we want to support those people we want to advocate for them and we want to educate people that um, don't know about issues that are pertaining to that community 
Great, thank you. Um, you. You know, you said something just a second. I know we talked earlier how um, when when Liam was born, uh, not only was it uh, was life changing, but it 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 was a catalyst for you to change your life and gave you a sense of purpose and meaning. And and it sounds like similar to um, for Liam, you know, as he as he grew in his transition um being transgender as he grew into that then he also then had a sense of um a sense of purpose to being able to help other individuals who may be struggling um and and i'm and i'm glad we're talking about this from an aspect of that even even though it is critically important to have a sense of purpose and a sense of mission but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to make all everything go away, right? Doesn't make, doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's going to magically make uh, a, a severe chemical imbalance uh, righted. Um, yes, it, it's true. It can, it can help continue to advocate for ourselves and those types of things, but it, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's like, it's, it's multifaceted. There has to be there. It's a sense of making sure that we are doing self-care. Like you said, that you're working on for yourself, a sense of purpose, uh, um, you know, working with making sure that we have uh, our health is taken care of, regardless if it is diabetes or or some type of um, some type of mental illness. I know now as that that what Liam wanted to do and and what you wanted to do while Liam uh, you know was going through his high school years that didn't stop just because he died in eight, in two thousand eighteen. Um, you've been an advocate um, for the last, you know, since his death to two plus years ago. Um, so tell us about what, what are you doing now? I mean, cause um, yeah, tell us about what you're, what you're involved with now as, as you've been going through your own grief, grief process, but, but also continue to carry that, um, no pun intended, carrying that flag. So yeah. So, yes. Um, well, we started the Liam Foundation this year um, in 2020, at the beginning of the year, we officially became a nonprofit. Um, but it, it kind of started before that. Um, the first year that Liam was gone, I wanted to give him a Christmas present and I wanted to do something to honor him. So I decided I would take, <clears throat> at the time, it was like a little over $300 and I would pay for a name change for a trans person. Um, so to, do that you file through the court system and you get it approved by a judge and there's court fees involved. So I decided I would do that in his honor. Um, it ended up being a friend of his that um, is in that Our City, Our Story video, Eden. And it just felt really good to do something in honor of him for trans people. And it really was healing for me and I enjoyed doing that. And so and people responded really well to it and I started raising funds to do that. Um, so I started just doing that um, on my own and raising money and taking people and going with them and taking them to file paperwork and going with them to court and just being someone there for them through that process. Um, and I met Scotty um, last year. She uh, is an intersex person who speaks um, to different GSAs and she had met Liam at one of their meetings and she remembered Liam and Liam had stuck with her because uh, afterwards she stayed and talked with the kids and um, she, when we 
talked on the phone for the first time, she was telling me about Liam and she's like, you know, I, I remember him and I, I saw this video and I never would have thought that he'd be one of these kids. She said, I meet kids all the time that I'm concerned about and I was not concerned about Liam. And I was very shocked. Um, she remembered that he had everybody sitting around him, like he was in the middle and everybody was sitting by him and wanted to be near him and could tell that they were all like drawn to him. And um, he spoke a lot about me and um, very lovingly and proud of his mom. And um, she said what struck her too is that, you know, when he would talk about these things that had been done, he wasn't taking credit for them himself. He was um, expressing how he was a part of these things. And he, um, and she just thought that was very cool for, you know, a kid his age to um, not try to boast and um, take credit for these things and that he just wanted to share with her. Um, and we, we talked about kind of our dreams of what we would like to do. And we both wanted to do more for the community and have some sort of physical place that people could go. And we started talking about this resource center and we realized that, you know, we wanted to make a board and make this official. And so beginning of this year, we became a 501c3 and we got our office space. Um, it's in the Waterside building near city market. And so we are the first resource center for LGBTQI people in Rockford. And we um, just want to have a safe space that people can go to and we can connect them with services. We can help them with legal name changes. We can help find them um, affirming care, whether it's healthcare or therapists or, you know, just whatever it is they need. Sometimes just navigating these systems and not having somebody there with you that you can trust can be hard and can be overwhelming. And we just want to, you know, be there for people that need it. Well, I give you, I, I got, a, got a chance to meet um, uh, Scotty the, earlier this year. Um, we were, we were doing a project together um, and then COVID happened and, and then that, that project got uh, put on the shelf at least temporarily. So, um, but, and she has a lot of energy. There's, you know, so yes, I, she I, does. I, <laughs> so I can I'm definitely, thankful for that. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely, I don't have it. <laughs> yeah, I, can, I can definitely see how that would be a good, a good person to have on your team uh, yes. from, from that aspect of it. And, um, and, and I give you guys just a ton of credit for being able to, um, you know, to, to move forward with this and, and be able to be that resource. Um, uh, because it, it's like you said, it's so much, it's, it's so needed because I think the, the average person doesn't really fully grasp, right. That, that just as we were talking about Liam's story, his mental illness did not have anything to do with him being transgender, but it did complicate the treatment of his mental illness. And, 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 they're, they're, and I don't know if the average person really, or, or for that matter, professionals understand that, um, that sometimes they, they see it, well, this, this caused this. Well, no. Uh, Sometimes maybe, but in this particular case, that wasn't the case because he could, um, like you said, he, he drew people into him. He had that energy, he had that light, but, but, and that didn't mean that it was fake, but it didn't necessarily mean that it would erase everything as well. Um, it, meaning it, it, it didn't, it didn't allow the chemical imbalance to be 
stabilized. And when it started getting in toward those last six months, it sounded like it was definitely in a much darker place. Well, Phyllis, I so appreciate you being you being on the show today, telling not only Liam's story, but then telling your story about what you're doing. And as you're continuing um, your own journey, I, I, I saw that you were attempting to write some grants last night. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is why there are grant writers, my friend. <laughs> I know, I know. But you know, when you don't have money to give people for things, yeah. you just got to do them yourself. <laughs> I, 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 I totally, I can, I totally resemble that and appreciate that because I've, I've attempted to do them myself um, uh, and, and I'm going to put a shout out to someone who who does a nice job of, of helping with grant writing and he's very reasonable priced. Uh, Alex Geary is uh, someone who's awesome. been on the show before. Uh, he also graduated from Harlem um, and uh, but he helped uh, help me write write some grants uh, for Shatter Silence. So uh, he, awesome. he may be a person to contact as well. Okay. But, but you got to keep on giving the shot yourself and and just just your own journey of someone who you know have you know who wasn't in school in a traditional school uh and had your own hardships growing up and and sounds like not a lot of uh not a safe place to be growing up and living in um and what you've been doing is is pretty amazing in itself so phyllis thank you for being with us uh once again what's the best way for people to reach you if they either want to um support or if they just in their own journey needed to reach out to you either as a parent or as a young person yeah um p flag and the liam foundation both have facebook pages that you can reach us at and then we both have websites pflagrockford.org that you can contact us through and then the liamfoundation.org. Perfect. Well, well, thank you again uh, very much, and uh, and we'll be we'll be connecting again as we're doing some events coming up in the next uh, in the next month for mental health aware mental health awareness month is in October, and uh, I'll be reaching out to you and uh, having you guys be uh, see if you guys can be part of that as well. So perfect. Right, so so I'll talk, talk to you soon. Thank you. Okay. Bye.